Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be together again as God's people this morning as we come to, to worship the Lord. A very special welcome to any visitors who might be joining us today. It's lovely to have you with us, and we'd like to encourage you, if you didn't get uh, a welcome pack uh, at the registration table that you just pick one up um, at the info desk after the service and also a special welcome to all of those who are joining us online uh, uh, via YouTube. It's good to have you with us this morning as well. Uh, just a couple of announcements today. Firstly, uh, congratulations go to Gigi Formanik, uh, who is turning 80 this coming Saturday. So very special congratulations to Gigi and we are grateful to God for this milestone in your life and that we can celebrate uh, God's goodness to you and celebrate with you. Uh, then to the members, just a very important special uh, announcement uh, in, on, let me get the date right here, Wednesday the 26th of May, so that's in just a week and a half, this is a two Sundays notice, we are calling for a special general meeting here at the church on Wednesday evening at 730 uh, and that is specifically for the calling of an associate pastor. So more information will go out to the members this coming week uh, via email, so please look out for that. Uh, and please be much in prayer for us as we gather as a church uh, next Wednesday evening, that's the 26th of May at 7.30. Uh, there's been a long process that has unfolded to bring us to this point where the church, uh, where we are ready to bring a name uh, to the church for the calling of an associate pastor here to the ministry at Honeyridge. And so we would ask you to please be in prayer for that. And members, we really need you there at that meeting. Um, it's crucial that we, we not only have a quorum, but we really would love to have as many of our members as possible in this vital um, decision that is being taken to call uh, another pastor here to, to the church. Also, just remember that during the month of May, we have the, the blanket and jersey drive. And so um, please take note of that if you have any blankets, any warm clothing, please will you bring them here to the church either on Sunday or during the week. You can bring them and drop them off at the church office uh, and we will then in the course of early June be distributing those to, to many that we are associated with who are in need and who would be able to make much use of this. And then I'd like to just promote a couple of books this morning uh, that particularly type with what we're doing uh, in terms of our, our studies in the parables. But before I do that, the, the challenge newspapers are available at the door. Uh, these are really meant to be taken and, and given out. <clears throat> Excuse me. And we're a little bit past the Easter edition here, but it's still there and still uh, the good news never expires. Uh, and the, the cover article is, is of um, Stephen Lungu. Now, if any of you know of Stephen Lungu, he was a terrorist in Zimbabwe who arrived at an evangelistic outrage, uh, uh, outrage, uh, outreach, it was an outrage, um, that he arrived at the outreach with a desire to, to bomb and destroy uh, the evangelistic outreach uh, at a tent meeting in Zimbabwe. And so him and I think five or six of his colleagues were there to throw petrol bombs in, and their desire was to kill as many people who were coming to listen to the gospel that night. Uh, well, God took hold of Stephen Lungu as he waited at the back for the right moment, uh, and he was converted. Now, he passed away just recently, but God has done a great work in his life, uh, particularly across Southern Africa and across the world, and his story is in there. And it's a wonderful opportunity to just engage with, with others as a means of outreach. So please take the challenge newspapers. And then... Um, you may, as we've been working through the parables, just be wondering uh, where you stand spiritually with the Lord. And so I would really encourage you to start, if you are wondering whether or not you may actually be saved, 
um, with this book, Conversion, by Michael Lawrence. This is a superb book that really just gets down to the, the basics of what it means to be a Christian and to help you examine yourself in the light of God's Word to see whether you truly are born again. Um, it only costs 30 rand to figure out whether you're saved, um, and it'll be free if you just speak to anyone after the church service. But what about if you are a Christian and, uh, and yet you acknowledge that you've drifted away from the Lord and you've backslidden, perhaps for an extended period of time? I'd like to recommend this book. I've been working through this book with a number of people, and it is absolutely superb. It's called Getting Back in the Race by Joel Beakey. Uh, it firstly looks at how the Bible defines what it means to be backslidden, how that is actually an incredible sin and offense against God, and then it helps you to walk the road to be restored back to the Lord. So I can highly, highly recommend this book to anyone who might be questioning uh, where you are in your walk with the Lord. But then you might say, well, I've fallen so far, uh, I've sinned so much, will the Lord receive me back? And uh, this wonderful book, Gentle and Lowly, Christ's uh, Heart for Sinners and Sufferers, uh, will really be a great encouragement to you to know that the Lord Jesus Christ is always ready uh, to receive us back uh, with a heart of, of genuine care. And then just two others, um, Tim Keller, I'm going to mention him this morning. He's written a book about the parable uh, of the prodigal son called Prodigal God, uh, but this is his book called The Prodigal Prophet, uh, Jonah and the Mystery of God's Mercy. So if you've never worked through the book of Jonah, uh, and, or perhaps you've just worked through it as a Bible story and not really seen it for what it is, a story of God's great mercy, uh, then I can highly recommend that. And then lastly, Transforming Grace by Jerry Bridges, just a wonderful book uh, that encourages us in terms of this transforming work that God does in our lives as Christians. So there are these books and many others uh, in the bookshop that's available between the two services, and uh, as well as our library is available for you to browse and borrow books, and so I'd really encourage you to make use of the resource center. Just a reminder again, please keep our masks on social distancing during the services, um, and we, we encourage you to stay for a cup of tea and coffee after the service. Thanks, Cliff. Well, good morning, everyone, into our service this morning, both those of you that are here with us and those that are, are streaming live. Um, it's a wonderful pleasure and a privilege to be able to worship God even in these most unusual of times that we find ourselves in. And so we're going to start our time of worship with, a, with a, an expression of, of worshiping God. So won't you stand as we seek that His kingdom should come.
seat. Our theme this morning and the message that we're going to be listening to later is the parable of the lost son. And there's so much in it for us. That story and that parable is found in Luke chapter 15 from verse 11, uh, which is what we're going to be reading now. He also said a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country and he had nothing. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. He longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food, and here I am dying of hunger? I'll get up, go to my father, and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. So he got up and went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran, threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his servant, Quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it and let's celebrate with a feast. Because, the, because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. It's a wonderful message in that parable which we're going to hear of. And in our next song, there's a, there's a line which reads, I'm welcomed with open arms just as I am. And that's the wonderful message of the gospel, that God accepts us just as we are. Won't you stand please as we sing about that?
blessings, if you like, of, of COVID has been that new music has been written and new songs have been created. And this next one that we're going to sing is an example of that. It was written last year, uh, and it's based on Psalm 91. And Psalm 91 verse 4 has this wonderful assurance which says, He will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. Speaking, of course, of God the Father. Such a wonderful picture of a welcoming, loving Father. So let's sing about that.
Our next song just assures us of the simple truth that we can stand on every promise that God has made in his word. you know the story of Joseph in the Old Testament and there's aspects of it which we know very well 
But right at the end of the story, when Joseph is reunited with his brother and then later his father, there's that wonderful picture, similar picture of what we read of in the parable of the lost son. We read about this in Genesis 45. This is when Joseph meets his younger brother, Benjamin. Look, your eyes and the eyes of my brother Benjamin can see that I am the one speaking to you. Tell my father about all my glory in Egypt and about all you have seen. And bring my father here quickly. Then Joseph threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept. And Benjamin wept on his shoulder. And then at verse 28 of chapter 46. Joseph kissed each of his brothers as he wept. And afterwards his brothers talked with him. Now Jacob had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to prepare for his arrival at Goshen. When they came to the land of Goshen, Joseph hitched the horses to his chariots and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. Joseph presented himself to him, threw his arms around him, and wept for a long time. It's a wonderful picture of that reuniting between father and son. Please stand with me as we sing, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Treasure of my longing soul. 
seated. Please, please pray with me. God of all blessings, source of all life, giver of all grace, what an honor and privilege we have to come into your presence this morning. Before we even begin to tell you of our wants, our needs, our struggles, our trials, help us to remember, Lord, that you are incredibly wonderful in that you have saved us and that you have sent your Son to provide us with salvation for eternity. How grateful we are for everything that you are doing and have done in our lives. Forgive us for the times when we have so often thought of me instead of thee. It is the desire of our hearts, Lord, that you reveal yourself to each of us a little more every day. Help us to see the wonders of your character and nature and the perfection of your ways. Help each, help each of us to know how long and how wide and how deep and how high your love is for us. And that no matter where we are or what we are going through, nothing can separate us from your unconditional, overwhelming love. We are so grateful that you have made each of us just the way you did, right down to the number of hairs on our head. We are so glad that you knit us together in our mother's womb and created us in your image and for your glory. Enable each of us to see ourselves through your loving eyes, not our own or the world's. Remind each of us that there is only one like us and only we can fulfill the perfect plan which you have designed especially for each of us. Lord, thank you for the ability to, have, to be able to learn and gain an education and to provide our children with an education. We are grateful for the many fine schools and universities which we have in our area and who provide facilities and environment to learn more. We're grateful for the many teachers we have in our midst to give of their time and their, in, and their knowledge to teach others. Bless our children as they continue with the schooling and university education in these most unusual of times. Give each of them a desire to apply themselves diligently as they focus on their education. Bless their efforts as they prepare each day and help them to see that each day of learning is not only a gift, but it's also preparing them for many ways to be salt and light in a dark world. Father, we as a church are blessed to have men and women who are willing to serve you in our church and to be used of you in many areas of need. Please remind us to commit our leaders to prayer often. And as we face some big decisions as a, as a church in the coming days, please give us much wisdom as we deliberate on these matters at our upcoming church meeting. Throughout this process, may the fragrant smell of your love and unity touch us all. Lord, for others, the need is a physical touch from you maybe due to illness or age, discomfort, or an operation. And these are so many of the daily things which is a reality in many of our lives. We know that you are the master physician and can heal whoever and whatever you please. Give those who are suffering at present grace to endure each day and sure knowledge that you have promised never to leave or forsake them. If it's your will, Lord, please heal those of our number who are sick and restore them to good health. For every healed body, restored health, or successful operation, may we proclaim the wonder of your goodness to us, that where you have called us to endure some or other difficulty, enable us to identify with the word of Paul that your grace is sufficient for us. 
Thank you that we don't only praise you with our words, but we praise you with our intellect as we listen to what you have to say to us today. Please would you bless Clinton as he brings us your word. Give him an ability to clearly communicate what you have laid on his heart and give us attentive minds to take it all in. Above all else, Lord, may we leave this place having learned more of you and be determined to make a difference in each circumstance we face for your honor and for your glory in the days that lie ahead. This we ask in your precious name. Amen. Could I ask you to turn in your Bibles to that portion of Scripture that uh, Cliff read a little bit earlier, Luke chapter 15, verse uh, 11 to uh, 24, the parable of the prodigal son or the lost son is how we're going to consider it uh, this morning. Keep that portion open before you, and we're going to work our way through, uh, through this parable as we, we look at it together. Last week, if you just look back at Luke chapter 15, last week you will remember we considered the first two of three parables uh, which Jesus, in, in which Jesus' aim was to reveal to us the, the heart of God towards sinners. Uh, and so the focus of the first two parables that we saw last time, the parable of the lost sheep, and the parable of the lost coin, they focused our attention on the great love of God in searching out those who are lost, uh, the great cost of God to pursuing sinners uh, to himself. Now, for those of you who were not here last week, or perhaps for those of you who are battling to recall as far back as last week, uh, let me remind you where we started last week with the parable, with these three parables, and they all find their, uh, their source in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 15, where we read, now the tax collectors and sinners were, <clears throat> excuse me, were all drawing near to Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So the occasion of these three parables was this negative press that Jesus was getting from the religious elite of the day, the scribes and the Pharisees. They were not at all happy with the fact that Jesus was mixing with and associating with what they called sinners. They called Jesus a friend of sinners. This was a derogatory phrase which would have included all those who were not devout followers of the, the Jewish religion. This term sinner uh, would have included anyone of Gentile descent, but also specifically Jews who had chosen to reject the, the practicing religion of the day, who would have taken up, up occupations such as tax collectors or would have been prostitutes or would have been people who just generally lived as drunkards or lazy or, or gluttons or were dishonest traders. This was the category under which the Pharisees called them sinners. We saw 
that Jesus revealed in the first two parables, something that was previously hidden, that the heart of God is one of such love for people just like this, this category of sinners, so much so that he actively seeks them out. He pursues them until he finds them. But now this morning, we move on to the third parable in this little grouping, the parable of the prodigal son, which I hope we will see has a lot more to it than meets the eye. If you would like to work through a a wonderful exposition of this parable uh, written into the very postmodern context of our day, uh, you would do well to get a copy of Tim Keller's book called The Prodigal God. Uh, which had a great impact on my understanding of this parable. Uh, There is also a seven-part sermon series that he preached, which formed the basis uh, for this book, which can be found on the Redeemer New York uh, website. This parable splits very nicely into two halves, and we only read the first half of the parable this morning, verse 11 to 24, focuses our attention on the youngest son, uh, the one who we are calling today the lost son. And then next time, in verse 25 to 32, we're going to focus our attention on the older brother, and so we'll look at that next week under the title of the other lost son. So that's what this parable is about, these two lost sons. But if there's one theme that unites this parable, uh, it is not to consider the younger prodigal son nor the religious older brother in isolation. The overarching theme which must be considered as we look at this parable is the the overwhelming love of the father towards his two very different lost sons. And so that will then be the focus of our uh, our third study on this parable in a few weeks' time. Now, I mention this because although we're going to spend most of our time today and next week on these two lost sons, please do not lose sight of this theme, which actually not only just runs through this parable, but through all three parables, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost sons, and it is this theme of the great love of God towards sinners, something of that we've been singing about this morning. Just one more word by way of introduction, and then we'll jump into this parable together. Last week, the the two parables focused much of our attention on the sovereignty of God in pursuing sinners. We we looked at how the, the son pursues those whom the father has given to the son, pursues them to salvation. And so last week, we spent quite a bit of time considering together the wonderful doctrine of God's election in saving sinners. But that might have left you with a question. What about our responsibility in choosing to repent, in in choosing to put our faith in God? Doesn't the the doctrine of election make us out to be kind of like robots who are then just saved whether we want to or not? I'm so glad you asked that question because immediately following on from these two parables about God's sovereignty in pursuing lost sinners, the very next parable of the lost sons shifts the focus from the searching of the Savior to our responsibility to repent and to turn to God for salvation. And so I want to make it clear this morning that the Bible teaches both truths in balance and in harmony. Yes, our salvation is all a work of God's sovereign grace. It's based on His choosing sinners. 
It's based on him pursuing us. It's, it's based on him granting spiritually dead bodies, dead sinners, this new life in Christ as we looked at last week. But at the same time, the Bible also teaches that it is our responsibility to respond to the grace of God. It's our responsibility to exercise faith in Jesus Christ and to repent of our sins and to turn. So repent means to turn around. We'll see that this morning and to turn back to God. And so in these three parables, we see the wonderful biblical balance of God's sovereignty at work in seeking out lost sinners, but at the same time, our responsibility to respond to the grace of God, which he then shows to us in Christ. And so I want to to urge you to not try and and pick the part that you like most, or to overemphasize the one and, and minimize the other. When we do that, it leads us into all kinds of wrong beliefs and and wrong practices in terms of our attitude towards our own salvation and those around us. And so we need to see both dimensions to this biblical teaching of our salvation and accept them both and the implications of them both. And so let's move on then to consider this parable together. And we're going to just look, as I said, at verse 11 to 24 today. It's, it's only half the parable that goes on, and we'll read the rest next week. And we're going to limit our attention today to the lost son. Now, sometimes the Word of God does uh, contain a wonderful structure to a narrative like this or a symmetry that helps us to really see the truth more clearly. And this parable has a, a wonderful structure to it, and we're going to just work our way through that as we try to understand what Jesus is wanting us to know. And so the first thing that we see about the lost son is that he hated his father in verse 11 and 12. And he said, this is Jesus speaking, there was a man who had two sons, And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Now you may say, well, that doesn't sound like he hates his father, but really that is what it is. I mean, even for us in our modern, individualistic, selfie-centered, materialistic culture, it would be considered totally inappropriate to ask your parents for your inheritance while they were still alive. But in this ancient Middle Eastern culture, what this young boy did, probably about 17 years old or so, was totally unacceptable and blatantly disrespectful. Basically, he said to his dad, Father, I I wish that you were dead so that I could then get what is rightfully mine. Give me my share of the property that is coming to me when you die, but give it to me now. In other words, what we see here about the relationship between this younger brother or this younger son and his father was this. He wanted the father's stuff, but he did not want the father. He wanted the father's real estate, but he did not want the father's relationship. He was totally ungrateful for all that the father had done For him, given to him as a child, and he was oblivious of all that the father still wanted to do for him as his son. He was an ungrateful, ungodly, disrespectful, greedy son who effectively hated his father enough to wish him dead. Secondly, we see that he then fled from the father in verse 13. After getting his share of the inheritance, 
which would have meant that the father would have had to subdivide the farm. That was what was inherited in those days. It was the family farm. The father would have had to subdivide the farm, making the other half economically uh, under strain. He would have had to sell off the, the younger son's half and then given him the cash. And so the son takes this cash from the father and he bolts. He flees from the father, not just to the next city or the next province, but we are told he flees to a faraway country. This boy is making it clear that he wants nothing to do with the father. He wants nothing to do with his family. He wants nothing to do with his nationality, his religious upbringing. He's got his cash, and he's now on a mission to enjoy life, to eat, drink, and be merry. And he will do that as far away from the father as possible. We see in the third place then that he acted independently of the father. Also in verse 13, we read that when he got to his destination, which kind of sounds like the Las Vegas of this world, he spent everything he had, all his money, his entire inheritance in what the scripture calls reckless living. Now, the Greek word here refers to absolute wastefulness, totally unrestrained, both morally and in terms of expenditure, reckless living. We don't need very good imaginations to wonder what he got up to. Parties, friends, restaurants, drinking, drugs, sex, fast camels, you name it. <laughs> Whatever the, the rich and, and the famous were up to. This was him getting in on the action. The key thing to see here is his total independence of the father. You see, up to this point, he had lived as a child under the care and the protection and the provision of his father. And as a son, he had to obey his father as the head of the home. He had to work for his father on the family farm and around the house. He was accountable as a minor to his father, and this meant that he could not do what he wanted, nor spend what he wanted, because he was part of a family. But now, he was totally independent. If he wanted a McDonald's burger and a chocolate milkshake for breakfast, no problem. If he wanted to spend 10 hours a day playing computer games or watching prodigal TV, no problem. If he wanted a new woman every night, he could buy whatever his sinful heart desired. It was his money, and he was acting in total independence of his father. He could live the life that he always wanted to live, even though everything he did went against all the morals and all the values of his father back home. And so we see then in the fourth place that he ended up without a father. Now, here we see in these verses, 14 to 16, that after squandering everything, a severe famine arose, and he ends up in a place of desperate need. He has no home, he has no food, he has no clothes, he has no job, he has nothing. All the things that he had taken for granted when he was still at home were now gone. The security and the provision of his father were gone. Do you realize that he ended up with exactly what he initially wanted? He hated his father, and he wished him to be dead, and now he ended up with exactly that. He ended up in all practical reality without a father. 
he had sowed to the flesh and from the flesh had reaped destruction. Now the story takes a turn at this point, and we will look at that turn uh, in a few minutes, but I think it will be helpful to just pause at this point and to, to try and apply these first four points to ourselves this morning. Remember here that Jesus is describing the state of the lost. He's not just telling a, a story that's interesting. He's, he's describing the spiritual state of the unbeliever. Anyone who is outside of Jesus Christ here today, who's not reconciled to God as your Lord, Jesus is describing you. So let's see what Jesus is saying to us this morning. Firstly, he says that the lost person is a person who hates God. A person who wishes that God was dead. You see, today we can easily hide our hatred of God and our irreligion behind a veneer of religious hypocrisy, superficial religiosity. It's quite easy to be so-called spiritual today and talk about finding inner peace and talking about connecting with your inner spiritual realities. But the truth is that we wish that God was dead, because the reality is that the person without God is just like this prodigal. He wants God's stuff, but we don't want God. People are not interested in a personal relationship with God as their father. Every person on the planet wants to be blessed. I don't know of anyone who doesn't want a good job and a happy marriage and a wonderful family. Everybody wants the sun to shine when we feel like walking on the beach. We want the rain to fall when the crops need to grow. Everybody wants money in the bank and cars to drive and houses to live in. Everybody wants good health, both physical and mental. But let me ask you this. Where do all of these things come from? The Bible says every good and perfect gift comes to us from the Father of lights. That's James 1.17. He causes rain to fall and the sun to shine. He heals diseases and gives strength to our bodies. He gives peace to our hearts and clarity of thought to our minds. Every single skill that you possess to do work is from God. Every possession we have, everything is a, a gracious gift from the hand of a loving Father. But the unbeliever, the person without God, says just what this young son said. I wish you were dead. Just give me my stuff. Isn't that the attitude of the world today? Secondly, we see that the unbeliever not only wishes that, the, that God were dead, but given the first opportunity, he flees as far away from God as possible. This is clear from the parable in the Jewish context to flee to a faraway country meant leaving the land of Israel, crossing over into the land of the pagan Gentiles. It meant turning your back on the God of Israel. And this is especially true of those with whom God has blessed them with much. It's especially true of people who have happy marriages or families, good careers, financial security. God's given the skill and the intellect to become a, a doctor or a lawyer or accountant or engineer or teacher or business person. As soon as the blessings of God are received, what do people do? They run from God. They use the very gifts that God has given them and they run as far away from God as they can. They don't read his word, they don't obey his commands, they, they don't acknowledge his goodness, 
They do not even acknowledge his existence. They simply flee from anything and anyone who reminds them of their accountability to God as Father. And then thirdly, we see that unbelievers also then act in total independence of God. They live their lives as if God's rules and God's commands and God's standards don't exist. This is rampant today in the life of the unbeliever. Sexual immorality, pornography, drunkenness, all kinds of addictions in the extreme materialistic obsession of our society, in the pursuit of pleasure and and power and status, in disobedience to God's clear pattern for sexuality and marriage and purity and roles in the home, in the failure to acknowledge God to their children, to raise their children in the ways of God, and in their disregard for the church and Belonging to the church is part of God's design. And so the reality is the unbeliever who wishes God to be dead, who wishes God was out of his life and flees from anything godly, who then acts in total independence of God, that person ultimately ends up with exactly what they wanted. They end up without God in their lives. Romans tells us that this state of the prodigal son The state of the unbeliever is not the idyllic picture of bliss and pleasure, but it ends up being one of desperation and starvation, spiritual emptiness and hunger, as God hands people over to their sinful desires to pursue whatever their heart wishes, and in doing that, they end up without God and without hope in this world. I want you to see that this process happens gradually for some. There are some of you here today who've not openly or publicly denied God or denounced Christianity. But if you are honest with yourself, you have started to hate God. You've started to wish that God was out of your life. You've started to think and act and make decisions as if God was dead. You call yourself a Christian, and yet you are living like a practical atheist, as if God doesn't exist. You are gradually heading to this low point of the prodigal's despair. You will soon find out that life without a heavenly father is empty. But there are others of you this morning who are perhaps here today because you have in your past or are right now at rock bottom like the prodigal. You've lived life the way you thought best. You wished that God would just leave you alone, and he did. You fled, and he did not pursue you. You lived independently, and he left you in your sin. But in the end, your resources have been squandered. The famines of life have hit. Perhaps relational famine, spiritual famine, a famine of all joy and contentment, and you feel totally helpless today because the reality is that God has become to you what you thought you wanted, dead, and now you don't know what else to do as you stare the pigsty of life in the face. The scary reality of a person in this place is that your sinful heart, which should actually vomit at the thought of eating the food of the pigsty of this life 
is actually so desperate, so depraved, that the muck which is being dished up to you is actually looking appealing to your spiritually depraved soul. Well, praise God that this is where the story turns. It turns around for the prodigal son, and it can turn around for you today if we will only learn the lessons from this parable. And so let's change the background and move on to the next point, which is that he realized his need for a father in verse 17. Look at verse 17. It says, when he came to himself, when he came to his senses, another translation says, he remembered his father. He remembered what life was like with his father, and even that his father's hired servants were in a far better situation than he was in. The reality of his choices, the, the attitude to his father, his selfish, destructive actions, they had all caught up with him. And instead of finally sinking into this miry pit of the pigsty to eat what the pigs were eating, he realized that what he needed most in life was to get his father back. And this is the starting point of the journey of salvation which every lost son needs to reach. Which is why, sadly, so many people today think that they are Christians are not really Christians because they've never seen their need for a heavenly father, not like this. They see no need to be restored in a relationship to God. They see no need to be saved out of the muck and the mire and the emptiness of this world. The starting point for any solution must always be a realization of the problem. Now, again, for some, that happens sooner than later. For many, many who grew up with the blessing of, of a Christian home, the blessing of growing up in a good Bible-preaching church, you realized the magnitude of your spiritual problem as soon as you started to walk out the door. Maybe it was out of the door of primary school into high school. Maybe it was out of the door of high school into university or out of your parents' home into the work life. But as soon as you walked away from the things of God, by God's grace, you quickly returned. And you were spared the hurt and the contamination of the muck of the pigsty. Praise God for that. Never, ever look back on your salvation if that is you and say, well, I was never one of those wayward people who was radically saved. Nonsense. You were just as radically saved. God's grace just spared you the pain. But there are others today where perhaps your realization of this disaster came much later in life, as it did for the prodigal. It came after years of, apart, of being apart from the father. It came after much hurt, much devastation and emptiness in your life and in the lives of those around you. The key thing I want you to realize today is that this realization must come to all. The realization of your desperate need for God to be your heavenly father, it must dawn on your soul. The reality that if you are left to your own devices, sooner or later, you will hit rock bottom without God. And the tragic realization is that there are many who die in that place and are never, ever restored to their father. So what did the prodigal son do when he realized his predicament? 
Well, we see in verse 18 to 20 that he returned to his father. He returned to his father. Let's read verse 18. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. And so here we see the human responsibility aspect of our salvation coming into this parable. The younger son, after recognizing and realizing the utter mess he was in, he does something about it. He doesn't dig deeper in the muck to see if there's greater treasure hidden below the layers of of rubbish that were thrown out for the pigs. He looks outside of the pigsty to a solution that is beyond himself. And we are not told what brought him to his senses at this point. But I think the previous two parables have given us a clue to that. What we looked at last time, the constant pursuing of God the Holy Spirit in the heart of a sinner. The point here is that when he recognized his need, he got up and he returned to the Father. I just think about that. From a human perspective, this does not make sense. He had wished his dad was dead. He had caused the family farm to be subdivided and sold. He had taken all his money, run away to a faraway country, lived this life of waste in, in total contradiction to everything that his father represented. And then he got what he deserved. If all that he wanted was his father's stuff, well, then there was nothing left to go back to because his father had given him everything he had. Humanly speaking, to to think that the father would even accept this man back as a slave is a far stretch of our imagination. And yet this young man knew something about his father. He knew something about his father which made him think that perhaps there was hope if he would return home. And we're going to look at the father's response in two weeks' time. But already, so far, in this parable, we've seen that the father's actions to his sons, he did not beat the son when he said, Dad, I wish you were dead, give me my money. He didn't chase him off the property and say, never come back. No, we see that the father, despite being dishonored and disrespected, the father treated him with patience and grace. The father didn't owe him his inheritance. That's grace to give it to him. So the son knew that in his darkest hour, he could still return to the father. And there's great encouragement here for us today as we think of our lives and how often we've rejected God. How often have you wished God away? It happens every time we sin. In that moment of choosing to do something which we know is wrong, in that moment we are wishing God to be dead. Think about how often we've taken the blessings of God and we've squandered them. We've squandered them on ourselves. We've squandered them on our sinfulness. Well, there is great encouragement to know that God, yes, sometimes does allow us to bump our heads, even to get hurt through the consequences of our sinful choices, but he always remains ready to receive us back to himself. So we see in verse 18 that the son gets up from the devastation of his life. He turns away from the pigsty. He turns 180 degrees back in the direction of his father. And that here is the heart of biblical repentance in the life of the sinner. It's not saying I'm sorry while staying in the pigsty. 
No, it's turning around from that place of hopelessness and existence apart from God. It's a confession of our sinfulness to God. We see that in his own heart as as he plans out what he's going to say to his father. And then it is a deliberate, willful getting up out of the muck of sin and self and going in the opposite direction of our lives up to that point as we return back to God. He says in verse 18, I will arise. I'm going to get up out of the muck, and I'm going to go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. In other words, treat me with grace and mercy because I deserve the exact opposite. And so in the final place then today, we see that the lost son is unconditionally loved by the Father. Now, unfortunately, we don't have time to look at the Father in detail this week. It would be too much of a rush to try and squeeze it all in. But let me just point out one thing which is absolutely amazing. This rebellious, ungrateful, selfish son is welcomed back into the Father's arms unconditionally. Now, how do we know that? Well, look at verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Had the son said anything to apologize to the father at that point? No. Had he done anything to prove to his father that he was a changed man? No. He hadn't said or done anything yet. What we find is that the father was eagerly looking. There's the searching father again, looking for his son. And when he saw him, he felt compassion for him, and he ran and embraced him, and he kissed him. What an ugly sight he must have been. Dressed in rags, reeking of the pigsty, barefoot, dirty, skinny, smelly, And yet his father runs and meets him and embraces him and kisses him. This is the unconditional love of God our Father, who welcomes us to himself. Whatever state of life we may find ourselves in today, he welcomes us home and he embraces us in his unconditional love. So as we conclude this morning, I want to apply the second part these three points of this younger son's journey to ourselves. We've seen that the father's love was unconditional in the sense that he he didn't wait for the son to, to say or do anything to prove that he was a changed man because the father already knew that he was a changed man. Now, how can we know that? How can we know that the son was a changed man? How could the father know that he was a changed man? Because the son had returned. You see, it is only the heart of a truly broken and repentant sinner which turns back to God. We know this. In our sinful nature, when we sin against God, what's the first thing we want to do? We want to run. But away from God. But a repentant heart causes us, even in our sin, to run back towards God. It's only the heart of this humble and contrite sinner that turns back to God. It's only a heart that has been pursued by the grace of God which will get up out of the mess of the pigsty of sin and all its consequences and which will return back to the Father. 
And so as we think of what our lives, of what this parable means to, to our lives today, we have to firstly recognize our lostness before the God of the universe and what our true spiritual state is outside of Christ. But once we see that, once we know that, we know that we have a father who's servants, a father that the creatures of, like the birds of the air, they are far better off than us with all that we thought we could gain independently from God. We need to respond to this loving call of the Father and return. And so confession and repentance, two words which, which show that we've come to the end of ourselves, that's what causes us to get up out of our sin and rebellion and to run back to God. And so I hope you see today that it is clear that you must respond. You must respond this morning to what this parable reveals about the state of your soul. You must respond today when you recognize the mess that you have made or are busy making of your life. You must respond and acknowledge that you see in yourself the younger brother today. This is a story about you. This is a story about your journey of rebellion against God. And so you are being called to respond. Your parents cannot respond for you, boys and girls. Your friend or spouse, young person or young adult can't respond for you. You must return to God. And the wonder of this parable today is that God is ready to receive every repentant sinner back to himself unconditionally. So you need to get up out of the pigsty of your life and return to your Father in heaven. The choice is yours. The responsibility is yours. God's word has spoken clearly of your predicament, clearly of your spiritual condition, and clearly of the love of an eternal Father who is waiting in eager anticipation, expectation to welcome you home. But if you're sitting here this morning and you think to yourself, sure, Clinton, that was heavy. I'm so glad I'm not like that prodigal. I would never have done the things he did. I'm a good moral person. I do lots of good things. I even do good things for God in the church. Well, the story continues because you see they're two brothers. And so we're going to get back to your soul and your spiritual condition next week. So if you're the prodigal this morning, I plead with you. I plead with you to turn back to God as your father today. He will welcome you home. He's waiting. He's looking forward in expectation. But if you are anything like the older brother this morning, then I want to plead with you to come back next week. If you can't wait till next week because you realize just how lost you are as well, then please come and speak to me after the service, and I will gladly uh, speak to you. I know anyone here who loves the Lord Jesus Christ will be happy to speak to you about how to be reconciled to the Father. I made a boo-boo in the, in the announcements by telling you that the book that you need to get saved is 30 Rand. If that's you today, you can have it for free. Because the salvation of God is free. The book is 30 Rand, but I'll give it to you for free. Because I don't want anything to hinder you from grappling with the condition of your soul today. So please don't leave here today and say, I'll, I'll deal with it next time. Rather come and speak to me or any one of us here today who love the Lord and we'll gladly 
talk to you about that. Let's close in prayer. Our gracious Lord God, we thank you again today for this most well-known passage of Scripture, the parable of the prodigal son. And Lord, we've perhaps as children grown up knowing the story and in a sense being taught to look down on that prodigal son in judgment because of all the stupid things he did and his wrong attitudes, not realizing that in actual fact this is a story about us. It's a story about our own hearts. It's a story about our own wandering away from you. And so we want to thank you for the insight and the wisdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, who knows our hearts so intimately, who pursues us as the good shepherd, who at the same time calls us to respond to his grace and to return to our heavenly Father. Lord, you know every one of us here, you know the journey that we're on. For those of us who are truly saved, may this reflection on our own heart and our own lives and the great grace of the gospel cause us to be ever appreciative, to just grow in our love and our appreciation and our worship of you for our great salvation. May we never, ever minimize the work that you have done in us. Thank you for sparing many of us the heartache and the contamination of this broken world. Lord, even for those of us who've been spared some of those heartaches, we realize that if it were not for your grace, there we would be. And so we thank you for our great salvation. Lord, for those who are far away today who may even be in the pigsty, may they look up, may they realize that there is a heavenly Father who is waiting to receive them back. And as they look up, may they know the already working of the Holy Spirit within their hearts, causing them to draw them to yourself. May they not resist that and fight that, but may they flee to you today and find full acceptance and forgiveness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with me as we sing our closing song.
section from Philippians 4 from verse 8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. And the God of peace be with you. Amen.